Hi, this is Noel Manning, and welcome to Cinema Scene on WGWG.org. And if you're watching this on C19 TV, Meet Me in the Movies, we appreciate you tuning in as well. Uh, each week on this show, we spend time doing reviews. Also, uh, have some great opportunities from time to time to do interviews. Uh, very, very pleased today to have an interview uh, scheduled with uh, with Tom Siegel. Uh, Tom. Uh, is a, a filmmaker. He's a cinematographer, director of photography. Tom, your body of work is pretty stellar. Everything from the movie Drive from 2011, Three Kings in 1999, Usual Suspects 1999, several of the X-Men films, and currently the film Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, wow, just an incredible body of work. Uh, I, I think back to probably the first time I ever saw you, your work was in 1993, the film Indian Summer, and I worked at summer camp for like 10 years, and so whenever I see movies about reunions, that was one that, that stood out to me. Uh, you captured those reunions quite well. So, Tom, welcome welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, Tom, you've had an amazing career already. You've, you've been involved in uh, documentaries. You've done TV. You've done uh, all types of films, from the indie films to the the blockbusters. You've done the big superhero films. Uh, you, you've worked with the, um, a guy that I've been able to talk to a couple times, John Ottman. Uh, you've worked with him for, for quite a while over the years. What, what is it that initially brought you into filmmaking and this kind of love of this art, and, and, and how did that happen for you? Uh, you know, I was interested in, I think, the arts uh, from a very early age. I had an older brother who was a uh, photographer, and like a lot of younger brother, older brothers, uh, relationships, uh, he was, uh, you know, I kind of looked up to him and idolized him and hated him at the same time, so I couldn't do exactly the same thing. So uh, I decided to take his still photography and make it move and get into um, motion picture. I was uh, painting at the same time in high school and drawing, and I um, worked in a record store. I saved my money, bought a Super 8 camera, and started yeah. making little Super 8 films with my friends. Um, and that led to a, a fellowship at the Whitney Museum of New York, where... Um, after high school, I went to New York and uh, continued to paint and make small films. It was very um, uh, influenced by the uh, what at the time was called the um, it had various names: experimental film, right. or independent film, or uh, avant-garde film. It had all those different names, um, but that was very um, uh, um, very influential for me. And I um, um, started, um, you know, making my little films. And uh, eventually um, I got m more interested in, 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 in documentary and going out and sort of uh, seeing the world with my camera, so to speak. And um, I... Uh, did a number of documentaries all over the world, but probably some of the most uh, important ones were the ones I did in Latin America during the time of great upheaval in the 80s when the uh, Sandinistas were fighting Samosa, wow. when the um, El Salvador had its uh, sort of kind of revolutionary movement. Um, so I spent a lot of time there doing. Uh, documentaries in war zones and 
during all of those conflicted areas. And that caught the attention of a great filmmaker and cinematographer named Haskell Wexler, yeah, who yeah. Um, wound up doing a movie. Um, he wanted to do a movie based on a documentary that um, we had made, and um, that led to me getting the uh, opportunity to do my first feature film. And what was the name of that first feature film? It was called Latino. Latino. It was, yeah. Kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like my film school. Um, <laughs> I I was completely unqualified, and um, he, you know, Haskell gave me this opportunity that uh, uh, I'm not totally sure I deserved, and um, it was uh, it was fabulous. Yeah. You know, um, uh, it was a real learning experience, and uh, I'm forever grateful for that. But it. It's, um, you know, I continued to do both documentary and uh, features for a while. Uh, and like everybody, when you're starting out, I did a little, you know, a little bit of everything. I did um, documentary, I did news, I did um, uh, uh, television movies, right. I did episodic television. Uh, um, and um, I, I just more and more was sort of drawn to the uh kind of control you have in narrative storytelling right. and yeah. uh, the ability to... Well, well, talk about, if you would, that understanding as far as creating that narrative with the nonfiction compared to uh, kind of a set narrative uh, in feature films. How do you feel that that documentary style and understanding that helped you as you did transition into to feature films and, and, and feature-type narratives? For uh, a number of years, when I went and, and was working on narrative work, I always missed that sort of spontaneity that you get from documentary, from real the real world, yeah. real life. Uh, I kind of wanted to, you know, see something more spontaneous, on the set or be surprised by what was going on. And then I would go do, you know, a documentary and I would go like, Oh God, if only I could do that again. Or if the guy had just stood more to the left then I would have gotten <laughs> that perfect silhouette. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's ironically, you know, uh, uh, the grass is always greener, right? <laughs> That's um, right. Yeah. And, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I've come to terms with that, with that now, but I, I'm very grateful that um, having had all that experience on documentaries, that 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 feel and that language and that spontaneity with the camera and the relationship between camera and subject is something that um, has stayed with me um, to this day, and I, you know, I try to always keep that alive in my um, in my feature work. Right. So, uh, sometimes it comes through, sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, some projects it's more appropriate for and others it isn't. Or even certain scenes. I mean, the thing I'm doing now, I'm bringing a lot of that to. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was, yes. you know, there was uh, uh, portions of it that were like that, but most of it was a, a very different type of, um, of filmmaking. Well, let's talk about Bohemian Rhapsody and your work on that. And, one of the things that I found fascinating um, was that, you know, with each year that you saw the progression uh, happen on screen, you know, going back from the, the you know, the early 70s through 85, uh, it's, it seemed like 
visually from a, from a lighting standpoint, from the way even the way things were, were framed, they each had almost a, um, a life of their own, uh, maybe an arc of their own. Was is that something that that was intentional for you, or is that something that just kind of evolved over the course of, of working that film? No, it was very intentional. Um, the the story is is framed by uh, this sort of quintessential performance that Queen did at uh, Live Aid, and the beginning of the movie is kind of like a tease where you're backstage and yeah. you're coming out um, you're coming out to the um, you're about to come out and they open the curtain, you see the whole crowd and yeah. then you cut and you're back in 1970 and you're um, with Freddie Mercury when he's first come to London and you spend the rest of the movie from 1970 to 1980, his journey is, is sort of um, an evolution is very much um, portrayed with a, with a kind of evolving uh, language in terms of the look uh, the beginning of it is very um, kind of romanticized right. and um, c- kind of warm and golden and um, almost ethereal and has a kind of um, uh, fantasy element to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also a sort of raw element. It's a little grainier and handheld and, um, and all that good stuff. And then it gets, as they become, you know, better known and more... Um, successful, more on the world stage, more complications begin to ensue, you know, and um, that uh, impacts the look of the film where it becomes more and more um, sort of, sort of sharp focus, and yeah. clear, and, yeah. and the color is not quite as romantic, and it's a, it's a, it's a harsher or, or um, you know, a look that reflects this sort of really fascinating evolution that you have, which is going from the sort of the end of the hippie counterculture movement uh, through glam rock and then eventually into disco and the kind of um, uh, decadence and hedonism of the 80s. Right, right, um, yeah. So the, the, um, the, the look of the film is sort of, you know, um, makes that transition as well um, until you wind up in at the end of 1985 in Live Aid. And yeah. Live Aid has kind of its own specific look. Yeah, and, absolutely. And well, one of the things uh, in the film, you, you get to see uh, a lot of performance settings. You get to see a lot of the behind-the-scenes creation of some of these songs that, uh, that, that so many of us know. And I felt that uh, as an audience member, uh, I, I, I felt it was very intimate. It was very uh, personal journey, but I felt I was riding along with that journey and involved and almost, you know, in the studio or, or backstage or on stage. That was pretty amazing to be able to capture that and make it uh, work with audiences that way. And and you've been doing this for so long, but um, I think this was one of those films that um, that had almost in many ways this documentary feel to it in, in certain aspects. And then it also had that feature film aspect as well. Um, talk about how you were able to bring those intimate studio performances to life, and and then that uh, then we'll get then we'll move on to the big big stage performance after that. Well, you know, um, for starters, I 
I studied all of the footage that I could um, on Queen. Right. Um, all of their archival footage going all the way, you know, back to their very early days and some of their first performances at the Rainbow Room. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have the freedom to just sort of make their concerts look anything, you know, any way I wanted. Okay. I okay. had to, um, I really, you know, wanted to respect the look of their concerts and the way that the look of their concerts changed as they changed as artists and right. also as the ven- venues that they were playing at got, you know, increasingly large and bigger and bigger. You know, I studied the, the the footage, tried to sort of replicate the best I could what they did in their concerts uh, over the, you know, over the years. And, you know, their concerts evolved as well, right? They, they started out playing in small college clubs. Right. And, you know, we had to stick to the period lighting that was utilized for those um, at that time and for those gigs. So in the beginning, when you see him playing sort of in a college venue, there's you know, the old color wheels with the color gels that would circle around the light. We had, um, you know, the, what we call par cans, which are, you know, old theater lights that you've seen around forever. And that was where we started and then the each subsequent uh, performance the venue gets bigger and their sort of lighting gets more sophisticated and more you know a grander scale uh, by the time queen um uh hit its peak they had some of the biggest lighting rigs in the world yeah yeah and were uh some of the very early uh, adopters of uh, things like the Verilight, which is a what they call an intelligent light or a moving light that now today you see at every single concert you've ever been to. So there was um, quite a bit of um, adherence to both the technology and the particular aesthetic that Queen uh, presented over the years. Uh, and that's what drove the look for me in, the, in, in constructing the yeah. concert. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about the research that, um, that you did looking at the footage. How important was it for you to, to research the band, research the history, research Freddie Mercury, not just visually, but also um, even just books? Was that something that you felt was important to you to be able to capture this life story? Absolutely. I mean, everybody has a different way of working. For me, it was it was really critical. I read every book there was to read about wow. Freddie Mercury and about the Queen, and I looked at all the footage I could. And yeah, I went really deep into the, you know, what's been written about him. And, uh, and uh, Brian May of Queen was very, very forthcoming in 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 giving us access to the Queen archive. And wow. there's some ter- terrific stuff in there. So. You know, for me, it was very important to to, to study all that. Yeah. Now, is uh, I, I know you've done other films that have uh, historical aspects to them as well. I mean, I look back at uh, movies like uh, Three Kings that you did, and I think of Valkyrie, uh, The Conspirator. 
for films that do have these historical components, is is research something that you you try to uh, to you know take advantage of prior to these films? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I don't really know how you can do a you know a movie um, uh, about a historical subject without you know really understanding yeah. that historical subject. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, for me, yes, it was very important, you know, that um, I immerse myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, everything there was to know about Queen. I, I think back at visually some of these these other films, like Three Kings, Drive. Each of those have a, a visual life of their own, and um, and even uh, you know Bohemian Rhapsody does, but it has multiple lives which really does kind of unfold as, as the decade unfolds. You know, how do you work with that visual idea to, to what we actually end up seeing as an audience member? Is that something that you come to the director with, with your idea? Does the director come to you, or is it different with each project? I, I'd love to hear kind of how that happens for you. Yeah, I think it really varies with every film and every uh, filmmaker. You have directors that are very actor-oriented. You have directors that are very visual. Um, you have directors that are combinations of the two. Um, I find that every director brings a whole other process. Um, there are certain common things, that uh, part of filmmaking, that everyone has to deal with. But then there's a lot of things that, like um, most uh, artistic endeavors, that really uh, vary from one artist's process to another. Those directors that really leave a lot of the sort of lighting and aesthetic to me. And then there's others that um, um, have a very clear sort of vision of what they want. Right. And then most are somewhere in between, yeah. you know, where, um, you know, typically um, they're hiring you because they like your work and there's something about your work that, that appeals to them, and so they, um, almost by definition, they're trying to find a way for you know you to help them take their vision of their movie to you know the next level. Right. So you're tr- trying to enhance something that hopefully they already have in their yeah in their mind's eyes, so to speak. Do Do you have a preference uh, on which which uh, approach to take, whether you uh, are, are free to kind of make your um, own decisions, or I suppose I like um, people that have a very clear vision, but okay. are also collaborative. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I, I really enjoy the the range of experience in filmmaking, and and it's part of what um, you know makes it I don't know exciting for yeah. me and. You know, there are those uh, filmmakers, I think, that are, are cinematographers. They have a, a very defined style and sort of apply it to each and every movie they do. Uh, and then there's those that are more sort of chameleons and they kind of uh, change what they do from movie to movie. Yeah. And that's probably more the way I am in yeah. Maybe it's just because I get bored easily, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I um, I find myself with each project sort of wanting to go into whole yeah. new territory. Well, that's something I really enjoy about your work is you can you know you can look at you can choose five films that you've done, 
and they're all they all the five that I choose may be completely different in uh, in, in the way they're 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 shot and, and lit and um, I love that um, you know you talk about the chameleon you also talked about kind of the the collaboration aspect and um, you know filmmaking the the complete success of it really does come to collaboration and, and the teamwork um, for a complete package to work and I think about Bohemian Rhapsody uh, as an example of one of those that had you know, solid performances from an acting standpoint, um, you know, the lighting, the set design, uh, the cinematography, the sound design, the music, I mean, all of those things, uh, the direction, I think everything really clicked. What is it like to be able to work with a team, and especially a team that you've worked with before that you kind of know uh, and, and know what the expectations are of each other? Um, talk about that, if you would. Um, well, you know, Brian Singer, who was the director that um, started the movie, uh, somebody I've done a lot of movies with, and um, that's a great luxury for a um, cinematographer insofar as you can, um, you know, you're, you're, you're already a, a step ahead in the sense of knowing kind of what they like and what they don't like yeah. and, you know, what they're going to go for and what they're going to reject. So you know that aspect is, you know, is a, is is a, is a real bonus. Yeah, it makes it definitely makes life much easier. Yeah, you're you're you're, you're kind of a step ahead. John, John Ottman is also somebody you'd mentioned him earlier. Yeah, um, John Ottman is somebody that you know I've done a lot of movies with. Um, so uh, he and I have a very good communication and. You know that, that that's a real bonus for a uh, cinematographer because th- th- that communication with an editor can be very useful just in terms of like informing them about what you're trying to do in any particular scene or shot or if you have any technical problems you know you know please look out for this or you know we're going to have to deal with that or, yeah you know you know it's a, it's a, it's a very um, privileged um, and luxurious position to be able to work with people that you've worked with a lot, like any team, Yeah, you know, it's, the, it's, the, you look at, uh, you look at Le- LeBron James first game with the Lakers. Yeah. <laughs> you look at his last and, and you see a little bit of evolution. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, I, I tell you, you know, as I look at the, that, you know, that final set, that final segment of Bohemian Rhapsody and just, the way that Live Aid was recaptured uh, with the acting talent, and, and here we are all these years later, finding a way to, to bring that back to life again. That was just spectacular. And, and I just have to give uh, you, you kudos and, uh, and everybody across the board who was involved in that. It was, it was amazing. And, you know, I just sat there, and I remembered where I was. And you talked about you worked in a record store. I, I worked in a record store during the 80s. And it was the like the best time to work in the record store because MTV was king, and you know everybody came in to buy their records or CDs or cassettes. And uh, I remember that well. And so, you, you took me back a few years uh, with your work on that. And I just have to say thank you for that, man. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, I, I really did love making this movie. You know, it's it's I, I like I told you, I worked in a record store. I loved music as a kid. Uh, I've I'm, you know, obsessed with it, but it's not often you get to shoot a, a music movie. So, for me, it was just a, it was like a, a dream come true. 
Yeah. Any uh, final thoughts you have on Bohemian Rhapsody that you would love our audience uh, to know about? I'm really excited about how unbelievably enthusiastically it was received. Like it was, uh, I, I, I knew it would find its audience, but I had no idea it would find it with such, with, with such, um, enthusiasm yes. as the audience has taken yeah. to this film. And it's nice to see, you know, uh, for, a, for a, uh, um, you know, a brilliant artist and a musician who died way before his time of a horrific disease, it, it would have been easy, easy to make a movie that sort of, you know, wallowed in the, in the, in the kind of, um, uh, horrific nature of his death and, um, some of the more hedonistic aspects of his life. But I think, you know, having made a movie that was really more about celebrating the music and, the, and the, um, and the joy of the music, um, was, um, and to find a, 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 the audience receiving it so well is is extremely rewarding, yeah. you know. Um, and the movie is, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses. There's some pretty heavy scenes and um, some pretty, uh, uh, you know, I think intense emotional moments. Right. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's a real love letter to, to Queen. And I think, um, you know, you can tell from the way that the movie's been received that... Uh, there's a lot of love for the band uh, all around. I agree completely. I agree completely. Well, um, Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to spend with us. And I did have uh, one question that was uh, was tweeted to me. And uh, somebody uh, asked me if you could choose a couple, three films that you feel are perfect examples of perfect cinematography at its best. What would they be and uh, and, and Why? Oh boy! Uh, well, you know, it's a little bit like saying who's your favorite child, exactly, um, exactly, which I try not to do. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, being a father, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, there's some uh, uh, you know clearly seminal works of cinematography. You know, if you look at a movie like Citizen Kane and you learn about the use of the wide-angle lens, about composition and deep focus. Um, that film had a massive, massive impact on cinematography after that. Um, if you look at 2001 Space Odyssey, again, tremendous influence on, uh, on cinematography, on composition, on the power of symmetry. Um, if you look at Blade Runner, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Was, which was really the sort of godfather of modern lighting, um, I think right there you have three, um, you know, pretty yeah. uh, universally considered landmark um, movies in terms of the look and the cinematography. It's perfect. Well, uh, well, man, we really appreciate you spending time with us. Tom Siegel's been our guest right here on Cinema Scene. And meet me at the movies. As always, we appreciate you listening. You can always tweet us at CinemaScenesUSA. Until next time, I'm Noel T. Manning II. Tom, thank you again. Really appreciate it, buddy. It was my pleasure. And everybody go see Bohemian Rhapsody, and you're welcome to sing along. Till next time, that is a wrap.